when everyone speaks well of you. Shalom! Thank you for joining us for the Sermon of the Sixth Sunday of Epiphany, February 13th, 2022 from Christchurch, Jerusalem. In an age of social media, when so many of us are concerned with appearances and what others think of us, Michael Karam encourages us to heed the words of Jesus, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. This saying, and others in the Lucan account of the Sermon of the Mount, uncovers a spiritual reality that reveals the blessings of poverty, desperation, and even persecution. Deacon Aaron Aimee starts us off with a word of prayer. Going to turn to the words of Scripture, and it's so important that uh, usually before the reading in a, in a traditional church service, there's a prayer. It's a prayer called a collect, which is, um, there's many prayers called collects. They're like one sentence long, long sentence, one sentence to prepare our ears, our hearts, and our spirits to hear what God has to say through his word. So brothers and sisters, would you pray with me? Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in your Son and our Savior, Jesus the Messiah, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our first reading from the prophets, Prophet Jeremiah, chapter 17, beginning at verse 5. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wastelands. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought. It never fails to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and I examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. 
Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel portion is from the gospel according to Luke. Chapter 6, starting at verse 17. Now, when in the presence of a king or queen, you stand more so in the presence of the king of kings, as we hear him teach us. Brothers and sisters, the good news, according to St. Luke. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming out of him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I'd like to um, introduce our speaker, the one who will bring the word of the Lord. His name is Michael. And I've known Michael for at least 30 years, if not more. Actually, I knew him when he was um, skinny and good looking. <clears throat> way back when, and uh, for a good part of that time, we have been colleagues, and uh, we work together. Actually, I'm the junior partner in all of this, but we work together uh, to um, identify believing communities throughout the Middle East, uh, bring them together so that we can pray and uh, help each other practically, because as we all know, believers in this part of the world being uh, a tiny minority, uh, we certainly need all the help and support and mutual encouragement that we can receive. And uh, Mike comes from a, um, a Jewish home. I think they're... Um, your denomination, your Jewish denomination was democratic, wasn't, uh, they were Democrats. 
an American Jewish home. And after coming to faith, um, the Lord called him to the Middle East, where he spent uh, many years in Turkey and Iraq and uh, a little bit in Egypt, uh, plant, uh, church planting and uh, doing, uh, you might say, uh, discipling uh, young leaders. Now, my favorite story about Mike is as follows. Not long after the Lord called him to Turkey, uh, Mike felt it was time to, to marry. And he found a, a very lovely Turkish-Armenian woman. And um, Mike went to propose to her. And of course, he didn't speak enough Turkish in those days. And uh, his soon-to-be fiance did not speak uh, very much English. So the only thing to do in such a situation, get an interpreter to propose for you. <laughs> and that's exactly what he did. Now, I think Mike was going to propose the day before, but unfortunately, he had been arrested by the Turkish authorities, and so he had to put off the, I think he had to put off the proposal by at least 24 hours. So let's pray for Mike. Uh, and so, Father in heaven, we thank you for the, the life and testimony of our brother, Michael. We thank you in the way that uh, you have used him to uh, encourage many and strengthen the faith of uh, believers all through our region. And Father, as he comes and speaks to us now, we ask that uh, indeed that you would speak through him, that uh, we would hear your voice. Father, we ask that you would bless, your, bless us, your children, we pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us. But Lord, we also pray that, uh, that the words of the gospel will challenge us. Lord, we pray that uh, you will give us the grace to obey and to be transformed into the image of your Son as we put these words into practice. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So after such a um, glowing introduction a little self-disclosure here um <laughs> well when everyone speaks well of you um it, uh, actually i didn't i wasn't like falling in love with this young woman although she's at that at that she's still quite beautiful um i, I was actually praying for her for a husband uh, because in the middle eastern culture if you're not married by age 30 it's a it's a family tragedy. And um, her family was, uh, was putting, a, 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 to, to put it lightly, they were putting a lot of pressure on her to get married. And uh, I was a little bit new to the culture, so I was only six months into the language. And so, um, anyway, I was, I was actually just, I was praying, you know, Lord have mercy on this beautiful Turkish Armenian girl who's not married. Now, I didn't, know everything, but she had been proposed to by every single man in the congregation and said no to all of them. She had been a believer for 10 years. But there was a, another side to this story because I was part of a, a mission organization that, that absolutely forbid you to marry into the culture. So if I was going to walk through this, 
door, it was going to have somewhat of a cost for it. Now, um, I'll save a little bit of the Richard Wormbrand story because he was uh, part of this uh, thing until later in this sermon. Um, but there was a whole, there's a whole process within traditional Middle Eastern marriage where, first of all, there's, there was no dating. You couldn't just go out. You know, that's a, that, that's a capital offense if you go out with a woman without the father's permission in many parts of the Middle East. It could cost you your life. So you usually have somebody that goes on your behalf and, you know, creates a, an informal meeting. Uh, after there's some mutual interest. But um, I didn't really have any interest because the thought of this was so beyond what, whatever I even thought about marriage or anything like that. But the Lord had mercy on both of us, and uh, we're still married 35 years later. <laughs> but we still have communication problems. But that happens with every, that happens with every couple. That's not a language issue. That's a... Uh, that's just a male-female cultural sometimes issue. Um, but you know, I was just, as, as we were preparing for this, as I was preparing for this sermon, I, I do want to say one thing about this particular, um, these particular words, because this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is probably one of the most important pieces of the scripture, especially for Jewish and, and, and Muslims who come to faith. I mean, you ask them what, what words really impacted you in the Injil or in the Brit Hadashah, they will often tell you the Sermon on the Mount. But we usually, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, where do we go? We go to Matthew. We go to Matthew 5 to 7 because it's all in one, you know, Jashah there. It's all in one sermon. Whereas in Luke, it's actually separated, isn't it? It's in Luke 6. And then it's 11 and 12. So if you're going to preach on the Sermon on the Mount, usually you're going to, you're going to focus in on, on Matthew. And there are things that are, you know, that are, that are not in the Luke. And there are things that are a little bit different in the Luke, uh, account, but there are things that are similar. And I think I, I felt like tonight as we're looking at these scriptures in Luke 6, uh, 17 to 26, I thought, let's focus on these ones that are similar. Now, I, I will say, and I say this to my kids a lot after David gave this wonderful introduction, look at marrying somebody that you can't speak to is not something I would highly recommend. Don't try this at home. It's not, uh, it's not for the, the faint at heart. And in many ways, it stripped me of all my thoughts and my kind of understanding of what marriage was, because my, my thoughts of marriage were formed by movies and books and songs. And, and when you enter into a marriage where you can't speak to anyone, you, you're reduced quite a bit in terms of your understanding of what marriage is. But I, I will say this just in closing it up. We decided that where most people start, you know, really high in all kinds of emotions and everything like that, and they go down. We thought, well, we'll start really low, and the only place we can go is up. So, um, yeah, no, I mean, God knew what I needed even when I didn't know what I needed. And I had made some prayers and some, uh, I don't know want to call them vows, but I had made some, some, some statements to the Lord basically surrendering that whole area of my life. And after making a few mistakes, and I said, Lord, if you want me to be married, you're, you're going to have to do it because I, 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 I release this to you. I release this to your lordship. It's out, it's out, now it's not in my control. You take over. 
And that was three or four months later where he spoke when I was praying for her and said, you are going to be her husband. And I immediately started laughing. I did what Abraham did when they said, you're going to have a baby in another year. He started laughing, right? Sarah started, they all started laughing. I started laughing. I was praying with a Jewish woman who was kind of like the Corey Ten Boom of Turkey at that time. She was a wonderful grandmother to many, very bold evangelist. And she said, why are you laughing? Because that was, you know, you didn't do that in prayers at those times. And I said, never mind. And uh, it, took, it took a while for this all to happen. But it, you know, it did something about very much like the kingdom of God. And that's why I'm glad David said this. We understood this was a kingdom marriage. It wasn't a worldly marriage, marriage, and it was going to have to be something that we did initially by faith. Now, that might sound a bit odd to you, and actually it sounded quite odd to me, but uh, I had to get used to it quite quickly because it wasn't something that I normally, with again, that I normally naturally would have chosen, and it also came with a bit of a cost. So when I actually went to my leaders and I said to them, I believe the Lord has spoken to me. And it was, and it was actually confirmed by other people that knew her and knew me. But my national leaders for the organization I was with, I knew they were going to have a little bit of trouble with this whole thing because I knew that many young men had proposed to already. So when I spoke to them, I said, I know this is going to sound odd. I know this is unusual. And they said, that's fine. We can't deal with this right now because there was a wave of persecution that hit Turkey at that time where many of us were getting picked up and put into jail. And uh, they were searching as well for a lot of the what we were kind of doing at that time. And it was the main evangelistic tool in the country. And that was a correspondence course that sent scripture portions all over the country. So they were searching for that at this time. Unfortunately, the, that whole course and all the Bibles associated were in our house. Which meant that one day it was inevitable the secret police were going to come knocking at the door. So not only were we in trouble with the police, I was also in trouble with my organization. And I was in trouble with many other things in it. And it was around this relationship. And no one was speaking well of me at this time. And it was very difficult. Honestly, it was very difficult. And I was thinking, is this really worth it? But you know, when you get into a situation where everything is taken away from you, where your whole thinking about a subject is completely changed and you come down to almost nothing, that, that oftentimes in your place of desperation, that place of brokenness, the place of your biggest need is the place where oftentimes the Lord will meet you, isn't it? That's the place where God meets you. And I went through some very difficult times, but along the way, the Lord continued to confirm this word. He said to me at one point, I'm not going to force you to do this. I'm not going to force you to do this. Marriage, by the way, is not a moral issue. Divorce is a moral issue, but marriage is not a moral issue. You don't have to get married. If you don't get married, you're still acceptable in the kingdom of God. He says clearly about this. But once you are married, that's another story, isn't it? In fact, it's one of the few things that he's quite strong in the, new, in the Gospels about. Okay, hypocrisy being another one. So he's very strong on this issue of marriage and staying married, even though, that, even though divorce was in actuality quite a normal practice, it says in the scriptures. So I knew that it was a lifetime commitment. I wasn't thinking 
if this doesn't work out, if I never learn Turkish, or she, I was actually learning a lot more Turkish than she was because we were in Turkey. If she never learns English, will we still be, you know, will I be able to still be married? Now you've all heard her. Many of you know her and know her English. You find it very, you know, has an interesting accent to this day. And she still doesn't know a lot what's going on in English. Uh, but at the same time, I realized that this was a kingdom this was a kingdom marriage. This wasn't necessarily a worldly marriage. And while I didn't know anybody else who had done this, it really helped me and it encouraged me. And the other thing was this, what you begin by faith, you have to continue by faith. You can't begin with faith and finish with the flesh. Now, Abraham helped us to see that, didn't he? There were times when he wanted to complete God's promises by the flesh, whereas God wanted him to continue to walk by faith. But when we look at these scriptures in Luke 6, and we look at the place where we have to say, we have to, it should cause us a question, even in the Matthew ones. These two sort of bookends of these first, what we call the Beatitudes, are two unusual, I would say counterintuitive, paradoxical type of scriptures that basically talk about one important event that Yeshua is going to be explaining many times, and that is entrance into the kingdom of God. Entrance into the kingdom of God. So on one side of this, we have in the very first one, it says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And then we have on the other end, blessed are those when they speak evil of you, revile you, reject you, say all kinds of evil about you. Not only that, leap for joy in that day, for that's how they treated the prophets. For yours is the kingdom. Now, if you were to do a quick search, take out your phone or whatever, and look for the cross-references for entering the kingdom of God, you would find about 50 different uh, verses that you could come at about entering the kingdom of God. And you'd have to say, well, which one is it? But I have to say, this is a, a clear introduction right here in this place of poverty. Now, for me, and I'm looking at this from the Tanakh and, and having Yeshua talk about this, there's a problem here, isn't there? Because poverty is not something that's praised in the Torah, is it? If you are obedient to God, what happens? You're blessed. Your fields are blessed. Your home is blessed. You, you, you have all you need. Everything is provided. That, that's blessing. Poverty is not a blessing. And so the question then has to do is, how do we understand these words of Yeshua? They're some of the most beautiful. Like I said, they're some of the ones that attract more people to faith in the Middle East than any other scriptures. And I would also say that if we look carefully at what he's doing here, where would it parallel in the Torah? Moses on the mountain. Look, if you ask an Orthodox Jew, what's the most important book of the Bible? He'll quickly tell you, well, Exodus, the rest is commentary. Why? Because that's the place where God reveals himself to his people. That's where he gives this instruction, this Torah, these words to live by, doesn't he? This is where it all begins. This is where we, we hit this major theme. In fact, it's the major theme of both the Tanakh and the Brit Hadashah and the New Testament. Slavery to freedom. That's where it happens. 
slavery to freedom. We were slaves in Egypt. In our own land, we will be free men. And not only that, it's also the place, and this, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I mean, you can, this is debatable, but this is for me the place where we begin to see the kingdom of God. It's in the desert. It's in the place of poverty. It's in the place of their greatest need. Have you brought us out to the desert to kill us? And yet this is a place where we see God ruling and reigning over his people, don't we? This is where he's providing for them from nothing. Look, you go out to the desert. You don't go out to the desert to have a party. You don't go out to the desert to thrive. You go out to the desert to die often. And they're in the desert, and he's, he shows his power, his presence, his provision, his protection, and his purpose. This is the kingdom of God. This is the, the I mean, it's, we don't really get the word, but this is God, the benevolent God revealing. But what else do we get in the book of Exodus? We get this conversation between God and Moses where God reveals who he is. That's where it comes from. The whole, the greatest place of self-revelation is Exodus and this conversation. Exodus 34. But here we are and we're in these, these, these scriptures now in the new covenant where he's now beginning to, then he's going to, begin this revelation of who the Father is, and not only who the Father is, but this relationship that he has with the Father. He's going to reveal it. He's going to reveal the Father. And it's, honestly, it's one of the, it's, it's on one side, it's, it's some of the most beautiful scriptures in the whole New Covenant, but some of the most misunderstood. Why? Well, I'll say for two reasons this. One, if we look at these verses, these wonderful verses, these Beatitudes, this, even these ones in Luke 6, we have to say that if we look with them at a this-world view, they don't make sense. They do not make sense. But if we have an eternal view, then they start to fall into place. In other words, if you look carefully at these, at the Luke 6 scriptures, right, and we look at them, they're actually parallel, aren't they? The first one is, blessed are those who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now you look down at 24, but woe to you who are rich. Okay, now we look at the next one. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you will be satisfied. Well, listen, woe to you who are full now, for you'll be hungry. There's an incredible paradox going on here that doesn't make sense. It's an upside-down kingdom, but it's only upside-down if you're looking at it from this world's perspective. So the first thing you have to look at these scriptures is you have to have an eternal view. You have to have an eternal view. Remember the kingdom of God. Where is it, they said? When is it? And he kind of plays with them back and forth. And one of the best explanations was so important for me as a young believer to hear this and to understand it. Well, is the kingdom of God in the future or is it right now? And the answer is yes, it's now and not yet. Okay, it's not only now and it's not only not yet. It's now and not yet. It has an eternal view, has an eternal aspect of it. My kingdom is not of this world or my servants would what? Would fight to bring it about now. The second 
part of understanding these that I think is so important, and this is not just these, but I believe it's all of the, the sum of this Matthew 5 to 7 and Luke 6, 11 and 12 is this. When John is baptizing at the Jordan, he makes an, a very important statement. He says, he says, I baptize you with water, but someone who's coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. Now, we all major on that Holy Spirit. We kind of put the fire aside, but the fire is getting closer, isn't it? We're living in a time where the, the, the heat is growing around the earth. And I think the, the fire that he's talking about, the baptism of fire that's coming, I think we're going to understand more and more in the days to come. But the Holy Spirit, I believe, is absolutely crucial, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, to understand these scriptures. Why? Because the role of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life or in the believing community's life is to transform us into the image of the Son. And I'm now, now stay with me here. I'm not talking about a physical image. I'm talking about an internal change that happens in us where we take on the nature of the kingdom. Without the nature of the kingdom, these words, and these are just the beginning of them, aren't they? Loving your enemy, forgiving, not, you know, all these different things he's going to point out. They're impossible without the nature of the kingdom. Somebody explained it to me like this once. These are beautiful words. These are incredible. They're so high. But remember, if we compare them with the Ten Commandments, which we as a people could not do, basically what Yeshua is doing here is he's raising the bar, isn't he? I'm not just saying, you know, love those who love you. I'm talking about loving those who hate you. I'm talking about rejoicing when people make fun of you. I'm calling your righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, how is that? It's impossible. In other words, if we couldn't get over it when it was down here, how are we going to possibly be able to get over it? It's up here unless the Holy Spirit is doing a work in us that's transforming our inner man into the place where we take on the nature of the kingdom of God and of Yeshua. Now, what's a, what the mystery in all of this, or the difficulty that I find, is that, and I think you probably all know this, we don't see it in ourselves. It's hidden from us. Because repentance is, this is one of my mentors said one time, repentance is conscious. We know when we need to repent. It's clear. We probably should be repenting most of our days for the rest of our lives if we're going to grow. But holiness, true holiness, is unconscious. We don't see it. We don't know it. It's almost a mystery to us. And yet what it promises us, and this is, I think, that something that is, we're hopefully going to get to in all of this, what it promises us is a relationship this way, and this way that is different than every other religion, every other relationship, every other thing, every other organization in the entire world. That's what he's building. 
That's what he's building. He's building this group, these disciples, these friends that are going to take on the nature that the Holy Spirit does in him. One of my, um, a, a colleague of mine now and a, a good friend uh, went through an experience that uh, kind of pointed this out. And I'm going to specifically focus on this, the last part of these uh, scriptures in or sorry, the last part of the blessed said, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, revile you, spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. David made mention of a... Um, of an event that, that many of us who've lived and worked in places of the Middle East, and that is you come into conflict with the powers and the governments in this part of the world. Not because that's your purpose, but because that's just part of this area of the world. So a good friend of mine who actually was serving in Turkey for many years, he served in the city I did, he came from the same almost spiritual background. He's about five or six years, probably seven years younger than I am. He actually got to the city that I was in after me. We became friends, uh, acquaintances. We had similar kind of focuses in our ministry. Was picked up in 2016 and placed in, in um, prison in Turkey for his faith for two years. Most of you know the story. It's the story of Andrew Brunson. Um, but I'm not sure many of you have probably read the account of his life. So I just want to put this out. Why? Because Andrew's on his way here in a few months to be with us for an Isaiah 19 gathering that we'll have here at Christ Church. It's a book called God's Hostage, and it's his account, his own account, of two years in a Turkish prison. Now, uh, has anybody read the book here? Nobody's read the book. Okay, so it, it, it's very easy to get a hold of. And uh, he actually, um, he actually, uh, he actually reads, or I guess he would, when it's an audible book, he reads the book. So if you get the book and it's an audible book, you can hear him read the book. Now, what's amazing about this book is that he romanticized prison life until he got there. He read all kinds of books. And you know, when you're reading a book, you know that there's probably going to be a pretty good ending in the book because, you know, the person is talking about it that's writing it. And he romanticized prison life until it happened to him. He was in a cell with 21 other Muslims that was for about six people for the course of a year. He lost probably between 70 and 80 pounds and was very near suicide. In fact, that was one of his comforts that would happen. He said, when there was an earthquake, and there are many earthquakes in Turkey, everybody ran out into the courtyard he stayed in the room because he said, maybe the building will collapse and uh, that will be the end. That's how he had gotten to. But at one point in his whole, and I want to read this for you. I didn't read it for the first service because I didn't want to take time to get there. But I want to read for you one section of it. And this is when things start to turn around for him. He's changed, uh, he's uh, sent to a new prison right near his city, actually, but he can't see his wife. His wife, he doesn't even know if she knows where he is. Now, this is causing him incredible amount of inner anguish 
because he thinks he's just going to be lost. Now, the sentence against him was 35 years. He'd already been in jail for a year, and he had despaired that he was ever going to see his family or his kids again. But he did have books. And so um, somebody gave him a book, and then at this point, he actually got his guitar. And even though he didn't feel like singing, he carried on as a discipline. He was determined to reclaim part of himself that existed long before he was in prison. Okay, now listen to this. Most unusual of all, I had started dancing. I'd been reading about Richard Wormbrand, a Romanian pastor who was imprisoned and tortured for 14 years under the communist regime. He took Yeshua's words, rejoice and be exceedingly glad as a direct command and chose to rejoice by dancing in his cell in spite of the horrors he was facing. I decided to do the same. I felt no joy and my body was weak and my spirit sad, but there was something about Wormbrand's story that captivated me. I, it also convicted me as I realized how far I was from Jesus' words that specifically said we should rejoice when persecuted. So I decided to dance like Wormbrand danced. Each day for a minimum of five minutes, I would leap around the courtyard no matter how much I didn't feel like doing it or how hot the sun or how cold the rain, I danced and it was an act of my will. Noreen told me, this is his wife, I'm sure that when you get up to dance, the courtyard is full of angels who are following your lead. And I know your father was pleased. His other, prison roommate, his other prison inmates with him just looked at him and said, this guy has gone nuts. But you know, at that point, he didn't care. It had gotten so bad that he said, you know what? I can't fight for my freedom, but I can fight for my faith. And he came to the place where he said, Lord, even if you kill me in here, I will still follow you. And even if it serves your purposes for the revival and the wake and awakening that we've prayed for for years for the nation and the people of Turkey, for me to be here, I will stay. And at that point, everything turned. Everything started to turn. Now, I know most of you probably in this room that have walked with the Lord for any amount of time have all come to that place where you had to come to that place of absolute surrender to God's lordship and his sovereignty. But for most of us, we know that is the entrance to the kingdom of God, isn't it? That's the place where we enter in and, it's, and our fellowship with him is more sweet and more pure and more real and more authentic than it's probably ever been. I first left western coast of the United States to serve the Lord overseas at a very early age I had a ton of head knowledge I had the best education public education that my nation was able to give I had a the best missions and Christian education in graduate school and when I got out there I realized I am the wrong person for this 
job. I don't know what you were thinking, God. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't even know what my professors were thinking. But I'm not, this, I can't do this. To which the Lord said, okay, now I think we're ready <laughs> to, to, to have you. And that was the beginning point of a journey. So what I was thinking as a young Jewish person, when I came to faith in Yeshua in, uh, from a secular Jewish background in the backside of the hippie movement, I wanted to test my faith in the deepest, darkest part of the world. Didn't, and that was to go where no one had ever gone, the youngest. I was, had so much zeal. Little did I know the deepest, darkest place was not at the end of the earth. It was as Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things. Now, as I was preparing, I don't know why for this sermon, but the, the, the words that came to me in the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to read them just as a, as a kind of a closing and to bring it. They're actually in Matthew chapter 7. Some of the ones that are probably also the least understood and seemingly the most harsh in the Sermon on the Mount in verses 21 to 23. Now, taken alone, they're very harsh. Taken in context, I believe they're going to make a lot more sense to you. Yeshua says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. There's another one of those enter into the kingdom of heaven statements. The will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't know about you, but as I, when you read through all the beautiful words and you get to those, you're, you're hit with confusion. Wait a minute. Those who are doing the works, those who are killing the Lord, I mean, in another place says, we ate with you and we drank with you in the streets. We, we knew about you. But he says, I don't, I don't know you. Now, in our educational model, for most of us that we've grown in, it's the acquiring of knowledge that gets us through, isn't it? We have to acquire knowledge. But yet here he's talking about something else. He's not talking about the acquisition of knowledge. He's not talking about the, the actual doing even of things that seem to be right. He's not talking about externals. He's talking about an inward reality. Something that we can't even maybe put our finger on, but is so much part of our faith as new covenant believers. And that is what? That he knows us. It's not who we know, it's who knows us that counts in the end of the day. Now, I don't know about you, but to be known is a choice, isn't it? The Lord doesn't force himself. He is a gentleman. He does not, he, you know, he shows mercy over and over again. He extends grace over and over again, but he waits for us to open the door. He waits for a two-way relationship, doesn't he? Now, to do these works of the, the kingdom, I believe, that he's talking to, who does the will of my Father, I think is lined out in the next scripture, right? He gets to the end and he says, the end of everyone that hears these words of mine, all these words, and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. 
Now we all know the story. The rain fall, the storm comes. It doesn't go because it's built on the rock. But then there's the one built on the sand. Now think about these two metaphors that I think are all over the scripture, aren't they? The roots and the foundations. We're living in a season in this world, I don't know about you, where roots and foundations are being exposed in the kingdom of God, in the body of Messiah worldwide. And if we don't take this time to restore our foundations, to dig our roots deeper, we will not be prepared for what's ahead. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not preaching, you know, gloom and doom here, although the end of days is some of the most evil days that we will experience. And we're looking at the, the beginning point right now. But I do believe that it's the growing up of the wheat and the weeds, as Yeshua told in the parable. It's going to be the best of days and it's going to be the worst of days. Thank you, Dickens. It's going to be a time when their greatest breakthroughs in the kingdom of God that we'll ever see, isn't it? But it's also going to be the time of the greatest persecution that the world has ever known. So if we don't have those foundations, those roots going deeper, if our whole desire and chief delight is not in the law of the Lord, then when this drought comes, when the storms come, we will not be ready. And yet here he is, he's telling it. This is, in a way, this is right now is a time of grace for us to be ready for what's coming. That our love will not grow cold. That we will preach this good news of the kingdom in all the nations before the end comes. I'll end with something... Um, a 92-year-old friend of mine who's been a mentor for many years shared with me recently. He calls himself an eternal optimist, <laughs> which I think fits into this very, very well. Because if you don't have an eternal view that God is in control and sovereign in the world, then you just look at the facts here and it looks pretty rough. But if you do have an internal view and you do understand God's sovereign and you have submitted to the Lordship and you are entering in whatever you have into the kingdom of God, he shared with me three things that have kept him this way for all these years. And I said, well, what are they? He said, first, whatever you do, obey the commands of Yeshua. Obey Jesus' commands. Two, stand on the promises of God. And three, be persistent. Do not give up. Now, Andrew got to the place where he had completely given up. He was very, very close. When you get to the point where the only place of your comfort is suicide, you're at, you're at the end. And yet, the more I hear testimonies from around the Middle East... One thing in common I've seen and I've heard that actually surprises me, and it's not just these dreams and visions, which there are these happening. It's not this miraculous, you know, encounters with God, and they are happening. It's not only this man in white. It's the place that happens before they get there. And almost all of them, I don't, I don't have percentages, come to the place of very closely committing suicide, and Yeshua meets them. And Yeshua meets them at their place of greatest need and desperation. 
And because of that, I have great hope, and I'll tell you why. Because these testimonies, these disciples are going to be part of the reason, or part of the way that God, I believe, is going to provoke my people, the Jewish people, and Israel to jealousy. And that's why we open the door for these Muslim believers to come to Israel for this, our Isaiah 19 God. He's going to use what has happened to them to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy. Because you know what? When you come to faith at the point of suicide, your faith is more precious than gold. And not, nobody can take that from you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these precious promises you've given us. We thank you for these words. We thank you, Yeshua, that you lived a life that you're calling into us. That's a life that's far greater. That's far more precious. That's far more valuable. That Lord has a taste of eternity in it. And Lord, forgive us when we choose things of lesser value. Forgive us when we put things that are, that are only of temporal value in the place where we could have eternal things. Lord, open our eyes. Lord, re, Lord, transform our hearts that we can desire the things of heaven even here and now. And Lord, make the people around us hungry for that same relationship. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fellowship we have now. We thank you that you've invited us into this, this relationship that changes everything. And Lord, we thank you that you know us more intimately than anyone else. And that, Lord, you long to be with us as you did your son. And that, Lord, you invite us into that relationship every day. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org Blessings from the City of the Great King